Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Nation. Thanks so much for tuning in. I am your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm here today with one of my friends and someone I stalk online, and we're going to talk about all the things. It's Kishana Palmer, international speaker, trainer, and coach with a 20-year background in fundraising, marketing, and talent management. Kishana, I feel like you don't need an introduction. (laughs) She's a supernova on any stage. Due to her charismatic and candid delivery, I have been fortunate enough to be at events where we were both speaking and share the stage. And it was just completely phenomenal. And we were just talking about when we first met and it was 2018 in Erie, Pennsylvania at Nonprofit Day. And then there were mojitos, right? At Cause Camp and several million other places that we have been to together. But every single time I hear Kishana speak, it doesn't matter if she's speaking about philanthropy, leadership, living your most authentic life, diversity, the energy that she brings to the stage, the ideas, the innovation, it's always entertaining and edifying. I love this part of the bio. This is, I did not write this, but I wish I could take credit for it. (laughs) Kishana is an NYC girl and mother of one wonderful teenage daughter. She's the epitome of your classic 90s Queens homegirl and quintessential corner office executive. She's your daily dose of Claire Huxtable with a side of Blanche Devereaux. I mean, that is pretty incredible. In addition to her work as a speaker, consultant, event planner, she also has a podcast. Let's take this offline, the podcast for everyday leaders. And congratulations on season three of the podcast. Absolutely. It's coming up, dropping in September. Awesome. (laughs) What's the address for that podcast? Let's take this offline.com. All right. Perfect. Because we know that podcast listeners are always looking for new podcasts. So let's begin with your sort of journey, how you got involved with nonprofit work. Yeah. Listen, first of all, Julia, how did I get into this business? I think like many folks of a lady of a certain age, Lady of a certain uh, age, yes. Not going to look for it. I had a, a budding career in investment banking. I was making all the coins, breaking generational curses, and darn it, <laughs> my do good heart. I thought, mm-hmm. all this money, all these nice suits and shoes, and no one is ever going to see it. I should go do something good in the world. <laughs> and so <laughs> I took awesome. my talents to raising money. I mean, it's that simple. And at the time, I was married. And that was single lady. And my uh, husband, then ex-husband, uh, then husband, I thought he was going to have like this big old career in banking. And so I imagined myself as a trailing spouse 
And so being the practical woman that I am, when I thought about what career could really help me to pick up and go, no matter where I could do it in the world, I was like, ah, raising money. I've been here ever since 20 plus years later. It's crazy. And you did really well at it. I know that a few times I've heard you speak, you've talked about your experience with leading fundraising teams, working on all sorts of different campaigns. And now, I mean, you're really considered a leading expert on leadership, resilient leadership, but also how to balance personal and professional wellness and well-being. And what does it mean to lead in a time where the only constant is change? Ooh, I mean, for me, it means to listen and to see. And one of the things that I have said to a few rooms that I've been in virtual rooms, if in the last 16 months, your team has had a baby shower, a Zoom wedding, a baby reveal, a memorial, and you didn't get an invite, your people do not like you. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I I want you to know you are on the outside. And so when change is the only constant, folks who are really leading are clear, are vulnerable, are learning, and they are most definitely listening. They know how to read the virtual room. And I think that you see that in many, many an organization who has had on the upside, you know, really, really great years around fundraising, have been able to pivot their missions But also the folks who have failed terribly have lost staff and talent and really realized that the systems that they had been leaning on heavily for years were a whole hot mess. This was their opportunity to seize the day by shifting with the shift. So if you're leading, you're listening. So what do you think are maybe some other important characteristics of resilient leaders, things that we can bring into this next normal. Because as of this recording, and probably as of when people are listening, we are not out of it. Uh, And I did love what you said on that recent webinar with Boomerang, how what is normal and what do we, you know, was normal even good in the first place? That's the thing. I think depending on what, what part of the internet you live on, your previous normal sucked. And actually, this is a whole lot better. You know, between folks who had to weather commutes that pulled them away from their families to folks who didn't really like their families that much or work or whatever, lots of folks are living double lives. And so I think to be a resilient leader right now means to really understand what season of your life you're in. You know, I really deeply believe that before you can do a darn thing at your place of employment, you have got to have your house in order or at least have that as a priority and pride of place in your life. And so being able to be open to new ideas or hell, Julie, for some people, dusting off the ideas from member number 1,245 that your junior staff member gave you three years ago. Hello. That you never listened to. Never listened to. People are like, I'm wondering if I can get new ideas and new thoughts. You don't need new thoughts. You need to read the email that you left unread. It's down on page nine. Exactly. And talking to the younger people in your organization or even just talking to anyone at your organization. (laughs) I love, I also love that piece of it where I know you talk a lot about listening to your team and asking them, like not just kind of forcing this new workplace model onto them. So do you have any strategies for how we can adapt to this hybrid virtual, 
you know, everything in between kind of workplace. I mean, the thing is that we have demonstrated that the work will get done no matter where we put our butt in a seat. And so leaders and and leaders who are choosing to be resilient, right, who are operating from a place of growth and resiliency will realize that maybe your need to have FaceTime with folks in office was about control and trust. And that you're going to have to contend with those things because these younger professionals and these fed up seasoned people, they will quit this job. And there are lots of organizations who are hungry for talented folks across all aspects of the work that we do in the sector who will treat your people better. So when we think about hybrid work, Julia, and coming back into work, the things that I think of specifically are being able to assess what work actually got done. Did it get done well? What did we have to change in order for that to happen? Right. Change really that bad? What resources did we realize that we didn't have, that we somehow scrambled to have that Mm -hmm. are actually making the difference? And what do we have to let go of? Oftentimes we have delegation by abdication. Michael Hyatt talks about that all the time. Oh, I love Michael Hyatt. And when you abdicate your role in delegation, you go, you know, Julia, she's confident. She's got it. Mm -hmm. And then you don't look up. So what I found, Julia, and I'm sure you're finding this as you're working with through their marketing about how to position themselves because they are in crisis, is that leaders who had left the running of their organization completely to team members without focusing on vision, focusing on that North Star, really establishing what success looks like so that folks are clear Mm -hmm. on where they can plug in, realize that they have put down large pieces that they now don't have the muscle to pick back up. That's amazing. I love that. I think that's absolutely true. Delegation doesn't mean just handing things off to people and saying, go do it. And I'm sure we've all been in that job. And I've talked about my first job as a director of development when I was hired and I my office was in a separate building completely from everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and they really said, here is like a stack of papers, go through these papers, go through all the grant proposals. And by the way, your job is to raise $10 million by the end of the year. Goodbye. We don't want to see you again. Make a report to the board meeting next month. And I know that the Julia now would tell the Julia of your first job, girl, well, get out. Get out. Get out right now. Run. Yeah. And how many of us are in roles? Right, regardless of whether we sit in a named leadership position or that we are leading by inference or influence, mm-hmm. where we know that the best thing we could do for our organization and, and 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 just more pointedly for ourselves is to get out. I think the thing that became really clear for me over the last 18 months is that coming into the, the first wave of the pandemic seeing how organizations and the individuals individuals who run them were able to navigate all of the different challenges in real time. And then now that we're going into another big wave where folks have different decisions that they need to make with remnants of the old decisions is that the reality is everybody doesn't need to stay. Some people need to be talking to other people about merging, closing, maybe becoming a program of another. And that's not, that's not popular. That's not popular. But if we're going to actually do transformative work in the sector, and if we really believe that we are people powered, and if we really believe that we have 
game-changing, life-affirming, system-moving stories to tell. You might just be a chapter in a book and not the book. So I'll give you a real pointed example. I knew that I needed to get out of being a fundraising consultant in its truest form. I don't write plans. I'm not coming in. I could. I will coach your team on how to do how to fundraise better if that's the executive team. Mm-hmm. I knew I had to get out of that body of work because I wasn't best positioned. That doesn't mean I wasn't the smartest or I wasn't good at it to do that work, that there was different work that I was actually more aligned and better in better position to be able to have impact. And if we're actually getting into the work in our organizations that are mission-driven and activated based on impact, then you have got to be able as an organizational leader to say, are we actually best positioned to deliver on this promise? Are we actually the ones who can action this mission to results? And that takes a lot of courage. How did you realize that? What made you realize it? And how can we, like, what are some questions we can think through if we're feeling like we're in a similar position at our organizations? I think for me, I realized it in two ways. One, in my spirit, and two, in my, in my, in my purse. Okay. So in my spirit, I wasn't excited about the work. There was drudgery around it. I was late on projects. Yeah. I was overcommitted to things. I wasn't handling my business with excellence. So did did organizations raise money based off the plans I wrote? Yes, they did. Did campaigns go off? They did. They happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Were more leaders in position to raise funds? Absolutely. Absolutely. Was it stressful? Yep. Would folks say like, you know, I don't know if that was my best experience, even though we got the result we wanted. Mm -hmm. And people like me, but they'd be some of that. And then on the, so that was, that was in my spirit. Like I just knew I wasn't doing the right work. I was tired. I was frustrated. Yeah. Um, it always felt yep. like I was dragging a hundred pound bear up a hill. Oh yeah. I feel like I've been there. Mm-hmm. And so when you're doing that, get out. Right. And so then the second thing was my purse. I wasn't winning RFPs, which I don't do anymore. I don't submit RFPs. I wasn't yes. winning contracts. I was the race to get to be the, lowest bid with the most work with the biggest problem. Like I was like, none of that was working for me. And so oh I, my gosh, I know. Out. Yep. I had to get out. So Julie, you know that when you're doing, when you are going up the hill and we are doers, action takers, get it doneers, right? Yes. So when, you're, when that's your mode of operating in your healthy place, you're not going to let that go when you're not in your healthy place, when you're in the feed my family way. So when you swing that into yeah. Being an organizational leader, when you swing that into being the one who is charged with raising transformational funds for your organization, that is weight on your back that you cannot shake. Mm -hmm. And so being able to be resilient in this time means feeling that fear and doing it anyway. Absolutely. Making those hard decisions, even if it puts you out of a job temporarily, because I guarantee you it's going to make space for your next thing. Guaranteed. Hey there, I'm interrupting this episode to share an absolutely free training that I created that's getting nonprofits of all sizes big results. Sure, you've been spending hours on social media, but what can you actually show for it? With all this posting and Instagramming and TikToking, does it really translate into action? In my free training, I'll show you exactly how to take people from passive fans to passionate supporters, and I'll give you specific steps to create social media content that actually converts. 
head on over to nonprofitsthatconvert.com. Again, that's nonprofitsthatconvert.com and start building a thriving social media community for your nonprofit right now without a big team, lots of tech overwhelm, or getting stuck on the question, what do I do next? Let me show you how it's done. I can't wait to see what you create. I fell into this job completely accidentally. Some people might know my story. I was laid off from my nonprofit development job. Not the one that I was put in an office, but another one. (laughs) When I was eight months pregnant with my daughter, who's now 12, but I should have seen the writing on the wall, but I was so scared that I wouldn't have benefits. And you're know, you just terrified of what the future holds and things that are unpredictable. And the status quo, while it sucks, is pretty reliable. So I think we do get trapped in complacency and a place of fear of the unknown. And I really hate to say silver lining with the words COVID just because I know there was so much loss. I know you personally had a lot of loss, but I think one thing that came out of it that could be viewed as an opportunity is things like the snow globe got shaken up. It absolutely did. Yeah. So what are some, what are some things that you saw that you hope nonprofits kind of, what do we, what do we take with us and what do we, leave behind as we rebuild our society, basically? I think the thing that we could leave behind are that we became way, not all, many of our organizations became way too complacent with the status quo. Mm-hmm. With systems that suck, with tactics disguised as strategies, with not having a plan, with not making the investment in your organization's longevity and health by hiring experts who actually know what they're doing, with taking whatever you could take with working your people damn near to death and not being able to compensate them. So as opposed to streamlining your programs and your operations for the talent you have, you want to keep growing stuff and working people to the bone. We can't keep doing that. Folk will quit and get this good unemployment and be at the house. And so leaving all of that nonsense behind and this idea that we can be mission driven, but not be in the mix of social justice. I don't care if you're yeah. missing about bees and trees and leaves. Mm-hmm. Or about doggies. Shout out to my dog, Chanel, who I love so much. Doggies, mm-hmm. cats, and pigeons. Or if it's about these babies, whether they're healthy or they have cancer. Or if it's about K through 12 or higher ed. Mm-hmm. I don't really care what your mission is about. But mm-hmm. I have to tell you, the whole point of your mission is to correct an injustice that is happening in the mission that you are so geek to serve. That in of itself is social justice. Hello, welcome. Welcome to the the struggle. And so the idea that we could do this work, whether you're a faith-based institution or a secular institution and not be in the justice work is false and foolish. And so that has to get left behind. What we can pick up is the reality that the work that we have chosen to do is both hard, but it is also rewarding. And it is a part of the social safety net globally of how to right side so many different social ills and challenges from environment on back that we have chosen to navigate Mm -hmm. and just call it what it is. Exactly. In this work, Julia, you thought it was going to be easy. Get out. (laughs) I know you thought you could just call up some wealthy donors or send some emails and 
Yeah. Never have to talk about tough issues. Oh, bye. See you later. We don't want it. Mm -mm. That for me is still a constant struggle. And I feel completely, I feel exactly the way that you do about that. I think that to say that nonprofit work is not inherently, like you said about social justice or inherently political is a fallacy. So when people hear political, they're going to freak out and they think I mean partisan, but they're very different things. So no matter what work you do, like you just said, you could be saving pigeons. Someone out there thinks that money could be better spent. Like what about the rats? That's right. What about the dogs? What about ism is going to push us right over there? You know that I work with an organization, a client now, they're trying to stop the dog meat trade in China constantly, every single day. It's what about the cats? What about the this? What about the that? And it's like, well, there's probably an organization working on that. It's not that we don't hate cats. It's just that is not our particular mission. Correct. So I agree. What about ism? Yeah. And then what about is them? We are not immune. And I think that there's this false idea or had been this false idea that folks who work in our sector are somehow protected from what was happening out there and that our work was by and large altruistic. No, there are lots of folks in the sector that make good money. Let's stop playing. And whose organizations, when you pull back, pull back the curtain, y'all ain't doing a darn thing. Woo-woo. And organizations that are doing fantastic work, working themselves to the bone are not getting either the resource or the recognition that goes along with that. Mm-hmm. So even within our sector, being a being courageous enough to right side some of that and to adjust that work. That is a second layer of work that we've got to bring forward. Oh, I love it. Well, that's a perfect segue actually <laughs> into what I wanted to discuss next. Well, first, actually, I want to ask what Enneagram are you? Oh, you know, I haven't finished the any. I'm so lazy. I don't, I'm not. <laughs> it's a lot of work. No, no, no. It's just, I, I promise you that I started one day and I was like, how long is this test? I love tests, but I forgot. So I will commit that I will take my Enneagram and I will let you know. Okay. Do you have wagers on what you think I might be? I'm an eight. I don't know because it's so much about what goes on under the surface, mm-hmm. right? On the surface, you're, I think you're definitely an eight. Like outgoing, like looks like nothing bothers you. But I mean, there's so many underlying like themes and currents that I think it's really interesting. I'm actually not an expert on it at all, but... What inspired me to take it actually was Mark Pittman's book, The Surprising Gift of Doubt. He talks about strengths, strengths finders, which I know you like, because you mentioned it in a webinar. And I was going to ask you about that too. Like, what are some tools that we can use like strengths finders or the Enneagram to really learn more about our team? Well, I'm biased. Do you want to transition back into social justice? (laughs) No, absolutely. I'm biased because I'm a strength finder coach. So, um, Oh, okay. That's so cool. And I, Fell into Strength Finder in my 20s. So I always tell folks like, you know, they are not paying me for any of this. But literally, it was the thing that changed my life as a manager. I was a young manager with a big team. It was the only non-fundraising session at a, a fundraising conference that I went to. And the name of the session was, I forgot, I always forget what the it is, but I remember the name. It was Finding Your Freak Within. Hello. <laughs> That's an awesome name for a session. It was so good. I was like, God, I got to name my sessions better. That was great. Because it's going to eliminate people it's going to like repel a certain group of people and attract a certain group of people. Exactly. exactly. And it was such a great, like it just a releasing thing about what would you do if you spent your time focusing on the things you were amazing at oh. aligning yourself with others who were amazing at things you were not amazing at. How would life look? And I was like, this would be my life's work. I mean, it was amazing. And my management game really like went through the roof after that. I was on a webinar the other day and they were at a keynoting at a conference and they were 
several hundred people on the, the line. And there are folks who work for me six jobs ago. Because wow. you know, if you remember me, I'm from this, but of course I remember you. And so your that work carries itself forward. But I always tell folks, it doesn't matter what behavioral test and you know personality things that you take that you like, follow all the activities. Do all of the work. Do the reminders, po- do the post-its because it's really great to keep reminding yourself about how you show up in the world. But that's one of the things that I love. Like I'm, if we're going to use it, we're going to use all of it. Yep. So. Oh, I love it. Yeah, man. I'm cool. So- well, I'll have to talk to you offline about that because I'm really interested. I love taking quizzes. Maybe that's part of my strength. I don't know. I love notebooks and planners and to-do lists. And my husband would definitely say that <laughs> you would definitely agree with that considering there's like post-its all over this. I do want to bring it back to the conversation around systems and sort of maybe the complicity of the philanthropic sector in perpetuating certain systems. So you founded the Rooted Collaborative, which is a global community focused on the holistic evolution and advancement of female leaders of color in the social impact sector. And I know in July, you held the Rooted Retreat, which from what I saw on your Insta stories looked fabulous. So what inspired you to create the collaborative and how did that come to fruition? Totally. So in 2018, I was on my way to AFP Toronto's uh, conference, the Black Canadian Fundraising Collective, which at that time was a loose group that had formed, invited me to dinner. And I was on the plane there. And for those of y'all who are, who are believers, you will understand this. You know, God was like, I need you to do a retreat for Black women fundraisers. And I was like, no. I can imagine having that idea in my head of something like that and saying, no, nope. mm -mm, Bye. And so I went on to have a great conference. The dinner was amazing. The seed was forming already. And I still, I even floated the idea. I remember at that dinner and folks were geeked. Women from the US, women from um, UK and from Canada were all in one spot. And they were like, we're doing it. And I was like, we are mm, no, but it was a cute idea though. I just want y'all to know. (laughs) And so over the course of the next year, I kept having more conversations with women I trust, with more advisors, doing more listening at different conferences, et cetera. And more women would come up to me and say, well, don't count me out. And they'd be South Asian and Southeast Asian and Latina and indigenous women. And I would, cause I was just talking about the one thing I was going to do for black women. Like that was it. I was like, I am black. I will do it for the black women. The end. And they were like, oh, no, no, do not leave me out. Thank you. Figure it out, lady. Bye. Yeah. And so <laughs> I said, they're like, literally just figure it out, make it happen and invite us. Right. And I, so I said, what am I going to do with all these women until we have this retreat in person? <laughs> yeah. Pandemic. And so we formed this community. And so then the pandemic happened. I wasn't going to do anything. My email was flooded with, oh no, we, we will, we're going to figure yep. this out. We're going to figure it out. So we did our first online retreat in 2020. That was Banana Boats. And then we decided to do it again this year when we realized that we weren't sure if the world was going to open back up. It did right after that. But what was so great and what's so great. So our retreat is sort of like our marquee event, but we really have morphed and continue to iterate rather not morph into a community of practice because the experience that women have, and as folks who've gone to our, through our ally track, as well as folks who are in the larger conference is really transformative. And we tried to figure out like, okay, well, how do we keep that going year round? And so we created the RC Lounge, which is our membership. 
and we have great events and wellness focus, well-being focus, life coaches, you name it. And what started to really stand out in our surveys and in the work we're doing is that if women are not well, then nothing else moves. Mm -hmm. And Black women, for as long as we can see, have been pace setters across every aspect of culture. So if we ain't well, then no one is going to be well. So our work is continuing to evolve and we've realized that personal development is professional development and well-being is so critical, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional health, critical to being well so that you can do the work that you are called and designed to do. And we can't galvanize and we can't create and move movements and we can't do any of that work if we're not well. And one of the questions folks ask me all the time, Julia, is like, why don't I do it for all women? I would like to. Is anybody planning to come volunteer and staff this thing? Because let me exactly. tell you, it's a lot of work. People have great ideas. And then when it comes to implementation, somehow yeah. they lost your phone number. Exactly. I'm like, about the funding. Cut the check so I can hire staff. Thanks. And so, you know, there will be a point where we will figure out a way because we want to make sure that Black and Brown women continue to be centered in our work. And yet we understand that there have been lots of fits and starts around doing things with women in our sector. And there are great folks who are doing work in different pockets around women. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work to be done. So from a trajectory perspective, the work, we got to get our stuff together. We have to make sure that women who identify as Black, Indigenous, and women of color globally feel like they have a community hub that -hmm. they can come to for that community of practice support and that we have a kick-ass event that we do every summer. So ours is going to be next end of September and we're going to somebody's island. So September 29th, October 2nd of 2020. I know it's going to be Wait, 2022? Uh-huh. Nice. Yeah. yeah, we'll be back in person. But the- oh, be once wonderful. Yeah, it's going to be great. And, I, and, and I've tried to figure out like, how do we include the folks who I love who don't, who aren't black or brown women? How do we figure you out- You have the ally track. I do. There's a lot ways to be included. Totally. But it, again, back to the amount of work that it takes to do it. Oh, right. And, about efforts to outcomes. And so if we're going to do work and it's going to stop there, I don't want to create things that feel like, oh, well, I went to this one training this one time and I checked the box. Now I'm good. No. How do we bring that work forward? And I may not be the best person to actually be the steward of that work. There are really great practitioners who are doing this work. Anika Allen, Chris Convoy, who are running Wellspring, like they're just doing an empathy agency, doing great work. Yes. I just bring in to facilitate because I have the, because I have an audience. Like, And that could be good enough. But the collaborative exists because there are so many women who are in organizations literally drowning in a teaspoon of sorrow at all times and being overworked and underpaid. Mm -hmm. And if we haven't learned anything in this pandemic, people have just had enough. Like enough already. I do want to say something just from my perspective as a white woman, you know, white ceased woman. I don't necessarily think every table is meant for me. I I would love to participate in more conversations around sexism and systemic discrimination against women in the sector or females or people that identify as women, but I don't necessarily think every single table has to be for me. So I really respect what you did with the Rooted Collaborative. I think that was, I think just from what I had heard from fundraisers that I know that it was incredibly needed. And I appreciate that. Yeah. And you know, Julia, here's what I'll say about that, right? Like, sure, every table is not for you. 
Also, none of this stuff is going to be transformative if my uh, white girlfriends who respect me and love me and would do damn near anything for me to make make things rock don't get in front like, I'm taking yeah. the boat. That's it. Because I was reading an article this morning about um, The Handmaid's Tale and the genre of writing, which I always mispronounce that word. Dystopic? Dystopic? I forget it. Oh, dystopian. And- I love, that's like my favorite genre. <laughs> What's so interesting about it is that it actually takes, most of the genre takes social ills that actually have occurred to marginalized communities, flips it, recenters the character as white to elevate the wrong that happened in the work. So that is at its root what the genre is supposed to do. Where it misses is to be able to give the context because like art, if there's not an explanation on the placard next to the wall in the gallery it is left to interpretation. And so in The Handmaid's Tale, it doesn't have to address race because white women are now centered. But the issue that the entire series rests upon are the buying and selling black women during slavery. Anyway, I I give you that because that's pop culture example real time to say, I'm not trying to recenter you in my work per se, but I damn well know that if I want this work that we're having to have real long legs, Mm -hmm. not real legs, we have real legs, long legs, over time, then you're going to have to be like, look, I'm mad as hell and we got to do something about this and these over here are not going to be treated crazy and I'm going to, like, if that's not happening over time, then eventually it's going to be an echo chamber and that's what I don't want. And so really figuring out how to, from a business perspective and then from a systems perspective, address that is really the work I have to do and it's the work that people won't see because it's boring. It's not cute. And it's not really cute on social media. But it's the work that has to be done. Oh, it gets ugly. It gets ugly on social media. Ooh. Yeah. Who are, gets... old, are we famous? I'm just it's good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm sure she will not mind me mentioning her. I just, I talked to Liz LeClaire the other day talking about people that get pretty heavily criticized on social media. So... Yeah, it, the conversations can really get ugly. I think for my for my last question, I would love to know what are some or maybe just the first step that nonprofits can take to expand opportunities for professional women of color in the sector. Start with the women in your ranks. Pay us. Pay us as consultants for our time. Pay us in our knowledge because what ends up happening, if you look very closely in organizational ranks, that oftentimes folks of color, and particularly women of color, are subject matter experts, but they are not compensated within organization or as consultants for that knowledge and then therefore are not seen as leaders because evidently somehow leadership qualities and subject matter expertise get disaggregated. Um, and so that's one thing. Pay us. Okay. This is real simple. Second of all, Make professional development a requirement Mm, and make the resources available so that folks are getting educated across the organization in the places where they can stand up and knit together Legos that really will have teams working cohesively towards the same thing. It is not enough to have a diversity hire. I hate that damn expression. It's not is that enough. still an expression. Oh yes. Diversity, oh, diversity hire, diversity board member. I'm like, you know, race is not the only diversity. Okay, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So really making sure that it's not just a checkbox, like yes. it's actually a part of your practice and your policies Yes, and starting there, not with your statement. How does it work in payroll? How does it work in compensation? How does it work in performance evaluations? And so organizational leaders who are in position to be able to make those types of sea changes, being able to step forward and be like, even if I don't really understand it, because, you know, I'm a grown person with a whole lot of live life and I may not get it. I'm willing to do something different. It's something that organizational leaders can do. Organizations are like organisms. And so if we're going to continue to morph and grow and shift, you have to recognize that the most diverse teams are the ones with the biggest innovations, are the ones with the biggest wins. Oh, you want to raise more money? You need to have more diverse team members on your crew, period. Oh, you want to have better communication strategy? You bet to be talking to the way the world is growing because it is a world majority of folks who look like me. And so I think organizations can pick any one of those as a starting point and then align yourself with critical thinkers, and if you don't have the talent in-house with external folks who will make sure that you don't, you aren't penny wise and pound foolish. Okay. And so that's, that's, that's sort of like pick from my list of choices. Yes. Thank you. That's a perfect place to end, I believe. Where can we find you? Okay. So I will say before you answer that, if you want to hear the trials and tribulations of dating, <laughs> definitely follow Kishana on Instagram. It is amazing. And every Friday and it's, we were saying it should be a book. It should be a podcast. It should be a movie. We're not sure where it's going to go. So I will just give you a shout out for your Instagram. Is it still fund diva? It's not. Oh my gosh. So changed it, right? Okay. So across all social media. Oh, perfect. Okay. Kashana Palmer. All right. We will link up to that in the show notes. What were you going to say? Type in fund diva, like in search, it'll come up. It's okay, cool. And if people want to sign up for the wait list for the retreat or the collaborative? Oh, they just need to go to therootedretreat.com and sign up. Um, if they want to know more about the Rooted Collaborative, to go to therootedcollaborative.com. Find us on all socials at The Rooted Collab. So anywhere that you want to be, we <laughs> are hanging out there a little bit too. Nice. Awesome. All right. I will put all of those links into the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank oh my you. God, Kishana, it was so good to catch up and see you and just awesome, awesome conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. Well, hey there. I wanted to say thank you for tuning into my show and for listening all the way to the end. If you really enjoyed today's conversation, make sure to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app and you'll get new episodes downloaded as soon as they come out. I would love if you left me a rating or a review because this tells other people that my podcast is worth listening to. And then me and my guests can reach even more earbuds and create even more impact. So that's pretty much it. I'll be back soon with a brand new episode. But until then, you can find me on Instagram at juliacampbell77. Keep changing the world, you nonprofit unicorn. Thank you.